you know, real money gaming is a smaller slice of the larger market, right? If we were to look at the way the market is sliced currently, you know, uh, there is a lot of misconception that RMG is 100% of the market. When you have large gaming companies, which are, you know, have very large profit pools, uh, they find ways to become net positive for the for the ecosystem at large. For example, Supercell is a great example, right? It's a company which makes $3 billion in revenue and a billion dollars in free cash flow. They run carbon neutral offices. They have set up coding schools. They're the country's highest taxpayer. Exits in gaming happen via m and It's just as simple as that. 93% of exits happen via m and We have another sector deep dive in store for you today. Our guest is Saloni Segal. Saloni is the founding partner at Lumikai, which is a gaming and interactive media fund. We speak with her about the landscape of gaming in India and the opportunities that lie within. We also dig deep into the regulatory overhang that's come in the sector. And we speak with her about how founders in India can go ahead and build large gaming enterprises out of the country. A quick sidebar to Analytical Raj from Podcaster Raj. We see that many people watch videos, but subscribe not So if you do like our work, please like, share and subscribe. Now, we hope you enjoy this brand new episode of First Unicorn Chats. Welcome to First Unicorn Chats. How are you doing? Very well and thank you so much for having me. No, pleasure is all ours. I'm going to start with congratulating you for your new fund. Thank you so much. You guys are a unique fund and you are actually uniquely qualified to lead a gaming fund. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, sure. You know, I guess I got into gaming a little bit accidentally. You know, I, used, I grew up in India. I grew up playing games, but I never saw anybody like me in a game world. Games. I used to play Civilization, I used to play Mortal Kombat, I used to play The Sims. And, uh, you know, there used to be days after school, I used to come back and used to be immersed in these amazing, amazing worlds. And uh, as time went by, uh, it wasn't really a, a career that I really thought about. And, you know, once I finished my undergrad, you know, I came from a family of finance professionals. Both my parents used to be stockbrokers. So finance became a almost a, you know, a logical next step for me. So I ended up going into investment banking and private equity, which actually took me to Europe. So, you know, half my career has been in the European markets and the other half has been in the India market. And, uh, you know, prior to Lumikai, I kind of traversed the journey of being a investment banker, a games entrepreneur and a VC. And, um, you know, after the first, you know, six, seven years of my career in investment banking, which where I spent time in Morgan Stanley Barclays and I spent time in a private equity fund, I got burnt out and uh, then I realized that perhaps it's the right time for me to pursue my passion, which was essentially games. And um, I got uh, the idea, to, my co-founder then, who was a colleague of mine from business school, who approached me and said, hey, why don't we build a business around games? And um, the thesis for that venture was that, you know, 60% of the casual games audience are women, but less than 20% of games are built for them. So the idea behind that venture was to build a really immersive 3D virtual world with NPCs who could walk, talk and interact with players and the environment. It was a very ambitious project, but that's how my journey into gaming started. I ended up eventually joining 
um, the seed fund that essentially backed me. Um, that was a fund called London Venture Partners, which has seen tremendous success in gaming. They were actually the pioneers of investing in gaming and interactive as an asset class. And through that journey, I saw what best in class in Europe looks like, what best in class in the US looks like. I got the opportunity over the last nearly decade to track markets like China, like Turkey, like Vietnam, like Indonesia, uh, the UK as well. And also through that started to get very close to the India games market as well. And in 2019, you know, there was a shift in the kind of deals I started to see and uh, started to see a lot more deals from India. And, you know, I felt that perhaps, you know, the India market, which has had previously had false starts in, in, in at least gaming, was starting to become ripe. And that's when um, the idea of Lumikai germinated. And I came back to India and uh, launched Lumikai um, in uh, 2020. And several of my investors and networks from my, my previous journeys followed me into Lumikai. And that's how Lumikai Fund 1 uh, emerged. Right. What a wonderful journey and a lot to unpack there, right? Because you've seen uh, even the gaming side of things as a gaming entrepreneur, then as a gaming gaming VC. I don't know if that's the right phrase for it. But you've actually seen behavior of users across different geographies, right? Uh, very simply, how would you, can you distinguish between a Western gamer's psychology versus an Indian gamer at this point in time? Absolutely. There are very inherent differences. Um, you know, the Western gamer has seen through a trajectory um, and they've been through various life cycles, right? So it's not just about having witnessed what the Western markets went through in terms of just geographies, right? But they went through very different evolutions. Um, you know, the Western gamer has seen the arcade generation. They've been a PC gamer. They were a console gamer. Then mobile happened. Uh, there were various business models of gaming that have emerged, right? The paid games, the uh, freemium games, then free-to-play. The business model of gaming over the last decade has really evolved. Right. Uh, the demographics of gamers have changed, right? Uh, earlier, a gamer was a 13-year-old sitting in his basement playing Counter-Strike. But now it is everybody from, you know, an uh, elderly lady playing, you know, Farmville or to, uh, you know, your mid-30s to 40s-year-old men playing a Clash of Clans uh, or, you know, your 20-year-olds playing COVID fashion and design home or the 18-year-olds playing Fortnite, the younger kids playing Minecraft. So now gaming in itself has traversed this entire, uh, you know, it's expanded in terms of demographic reach. Right. But also at the same time, gaming has become very mainstream. The fact that, you know, we're talking about gaming as an asset class, which was previously unheard of, is, uh, you know, testament to the fact that now gaming is a medium of entertainment. Gaming is, uh, as, a, as a sector, has, has just exploded, right? right? Uh, let's take one step back, right? We'll kind of unpack this entire gaming sector and the, and the map of the, of the sector. How do you, as a, a very vertical-focused VC, break down the different types of sub-segments within gaming? So, you know, the way we looked at the market and, um, you know, we've we've sliced the market down into essentially five key uh, pillars and verticals, right? The first is what we call is content. So this is gaming content, uh, games content building, uh, games companies or game studios building for the global markets or game studios building for, let's say, India. Um, this could also mean, you know, content across genres. It could be casual, it could be mid-core games. Um, largely mobile because India is a mobile first market but those are essentially the kind of content bets that we, we look for. 
The second is platform bets. Platforms are a little bit different. Uh, you know, within this, we've done bets like game streaming bets or social gaming bets. You know, we've done a loco and we've done an elo elo. But eventually, our idea here is to look for category leadership where new behavior or new customer adoption is essentially being imbibed or created, which can eventually go on to achieve large, large outcomes, large reach. There is another element of the market that we look at is essentially tools tech infrastructure, right? Which are essentially ancillary supporting, um, I'd say picks and shovel plays, right. which could um, support the first two categories, which would be the content and the platform plays. We have another way of looking at the market is essentially what we call systems of play. You know, how do we take applied game mechanics to disrupt existing industries? It could be a health tech, it could be a ed tech, it could be a fintech. And how does how do companies use innovative ways, which the games industry has perfected for nearly two, three decades, but is now essentially introducing them to these traditional industries and, you know, whether it's monetization, whether it's engagement, whether it's retention mechanics, but how do you bring those uh, interactive touch points to be able to disrupt industries? Right. And the last is, you know, what we call as frontier bets. You know, in this, we look at everything from mixed reality to generative AI to... You know, Web3 we've looked at as well. So, you know, that's broadly the large kind of mandate um, that we, the way we view the sector. Ultimately, you know, it's a confluence of culture, technology and new media. That That's essentially our driving force. Right. And that's so well articulated, uh, right? And I remember the first time that uh, that I heard of Lumika, I was actually in 2020. I think okay. it was your first... Uh, there's a f first press release or an interview. That's right. Yeah. Right. And um, I was having a conversation with my um, with my older partners, and they're like, "Isn't it too narrow?" Mm. Right. And uh, and I responded to him saying that no, it's actually brilliant because uh, you guys were also going after embedded gamification for other co other companies, right? Which is uh, even something as simple as the the infinite scroll or you know the pull down to sw uh, refresh things in. Um, in, for Facebook, etc., they they all actually came from you know, behaviors Absolutely. which they analyze on game uh, on yeah. gaming platforms, yeah. right? Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about how that actually transfers from, uh, say, that observation that those analytics and how they would they transfer to other industries? Yeah, you know, I'll, people don't realize this, but gaming is actually mainstream. It's it's everywhere in our daily lives, right? Um, there is a reason why it's a three hundred billion dollar you know, gorilla in the media and entertainment industry. It's bigger than box office. It's bigger than music. It's bigger than TV media rights. It's bigger than OTT. It's bigger than sports media rights, right? Um, and this has largely been because of two things. One is this technology paradigm, which has essentially made computing power happen in the palm of your hand, right? And the second has been just the demographics. You've got a digitally native demographic who has now really grown up uh, with interactive touch points. Um, and if I was to go back and I should say, okay, where do the genesis of every consumer-facing app, which is successful today, uh, if you look at it really objectively, all of it is actually a game mechanic in disguise, right? Mm -hmm. Your chat comes from the early days of 4chan, right? Your virtual gifts or these uh, emoji sticker packs were all these digital badges that were very ever-present in the 80s and 90s game worlds. Right, um, your leaderboards and progression and streaks that you now see, uh, your spin the wheel game mechanics that have become so common in your cred, or the mechanics which are used by a Duolingo or a Robinhood, all of these are ultimately game mechanics, right? right? 
And um, actually, very interestingly, most of the Silicon Valley uh, founders are actually avid gamers. You know, whether yeah. it's Elon Musk, whether it's a Mark Zuckerberg, whether it's a Reid Hoffman, a Stuart Butterfield, um, or Larry Page. They're all self-proclaimed gamers. And in fact, the origin of several large Silicon Valley companies were actually from gaming. You know, um, you had um, uh, Instagram was Mafia Wars meets, meets Foursquare. Uh, Slack was actually an online MMO called Glitch. Right. Right. Uh, so some, the genesis of all of these consumer-facing apps, which are essentially, you know, create a, create, um, a dopamine uh, hit or it is a culture of collaboration that it's so that it wants to proclaim or the kind of achievement or validation social validation that it provides you all of these are essentially game mechanics but that's just on the mechanics side but gaming unlike let's say other verticals of tv or cinema has been able to grow out of just what its proposition is right, right. you have game tech which is powering cities you know, um, or powering Unity, the game engine, it powers Hong Kong airport. You know, they use it to simulate uh, passenger footfalls. You have VR devices and VR, which is being used to train medical residents at John Hopkins University on very complex spinal reconstruction. Or you have enterprises, large Fortune 500 enterprises who have realized that it is cheaper to train their resources on VR devices ra rather than doing manual instruction versus doing let's say, you know, having uh, si very expensive simulations, right? Right. Low-tech industries like fashion are embracing gaming and virtual try-ons and AR body mapping. So when you start to look at those pieces of the pie, then, you know, it starts to make sense as that, wow, actually gaming is not, not so niche. Right. You know, gaming has far wider applications. Um, you don't need to now get expensive sets to shoot movies. Avatar Way of the Water was shot in a green room studio with uh, with Kate Winslet and the rest of the cast wearing bodysuits right. and facial gear. So, you know, all of that kind of expertise, all of that kind of infrastructure, all of that kind of know-how essentially comes from the games industry. Right. And hence, you know, that, ex that, that kind of uh, relevance that it has for, you know, what the next decade of um, not just entertainment, but what the next decade of technology looks like, uh, you know, I feel it has, you know, much larger scopes than what most people understand. Oh, absolutely. And I think um, just the second order consequences that we don't think of, right? Uh, those are the ones which are tremendous at this point. So goes without saying, I'm getting a PS5 now. <laughs> <laughs> you should have already. I, I don't, okay, let's not get into that. I've been like trying to keep away <laughs> so that I don't get addicted to to that. But Maybe I'll think about it now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but very interestingly, speaking of second order uh, effects, right? Uh, of course, you know, there's medical surgeries, etc., where people can get trained. I was recently reading, uh, I'm actually a, a F1 fan. Okay. Right? And uh, so basically now there are, there's, there's virtual F1 uh, mm -hmm. world championships as well, right? So the newer drivers now, uh, who are like in their early 20s, mm. right? They are both good with the simulator. Mm as well as the virtual, this thing, as well as in real life, mm. right? So, uh, and when I said better, uh, in certain, you know, reflexes, etc., I mean the re better than the really good drivers, mm -hmm. that, uh, mm -hmm. like Hamilton, who mm. won like seven world championships. Mm. So another unintended consequence is that, hey, these guys coming out are actually becoming better athletes because of these games. So it's a, uh, it's a very nice, um, you know, thing to kind of just map out, hey, these are the real consequences of 
where actually gaming can take you. Yeah. Right? Because otherwise, there's a lot of stigma attached to, hey, uh, don't get into gaming, it's a waste of time, etc, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. But these are the sides that people don't see. Yeah, and, and commercial aviation and defense, for example, have, you know, yeah. used uh, this flight simulator. Um, they've used, uh, you know, simula- simulations and gaming simulations for years to train, yeah. uh, train personnel, right? Yeah, so. uh, interestingly, I think a couple of years back, I was looking at this, uh, at investing in this company which had a simulator for figuring out how the wildfires would move across mm-hmm. California and how they could actually attack it, mm. right? Uh, all coming out of gaming, actually. Uh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. So it's a, it's really, if you, when you kind of zoom, take, uh, zoom out, you realize the actual opportunities here, yeah. right? Uh, just moving on from this point, I wanted to understand now, uh, gaming is something which is really catching on in India. Uh, the game developers are getting, getting more mature. Uh, and you've been doing this for a while now. Let's say over the last five years, have you seen a big change in the kind of gaming developers, their knowledge and how they are building in India today? Absolutely. You know, when I was uh, building my company, we used to have an India-based SKU, which used to bring me to India quite a lot. And at that point of time, there were maybe a handful of game developers. You know, I'd say, you know, last count, it was about 25. And um, when, you know, every year we do what we call a Lumikai State of India gaming report, and, you know, in the first year, first two years, we discovered that, you know, from 25, we've now gone to over 900 to 1,000 game developers. We're going to be out with our new uh, research report this year as well. I don't know what the count is since then. But, uh, but absolutely, it's been an exponential rise in, uh, in, in seeing people wanting to build games uh, or gaming experiences or, you know, platforms, tools, tech, uh, infrastructure. I mean, we ourselves in the last three years have seen, you know, north of 1,500 odd deals within this sector. And I think one of the biggest uh, things that we were informed when we were launching the fund, oh, this, the sector is too narrow, or you won't find enough entrepreneurs in it. Uh, in this sector, there's not enough depth, there's not enough breadth, and that's not been our experience. Um, I think there is previously um, game developers were hamstrung. Um, there was not that much funding available. And that, that was also globally as well, right? Um, gaming as an asset class has emerged fashionable, I would say, uh, or viable, actually, more importantly, has, emo- has become viable only, let's say, in the last, you know, four or five years. Um, uh, the fund that I used to be at previously was the first fund which, which um, you know, when, uh, targeted games as, an, um, as a sector. And that dated, you know, about seven years back. And there was the only fund at that point of right. time. So as a game developer, if you really wanted to build games, there was very limited avenues of, let's say, venture capital financing. Either you did friends and family and you tried to build revenue, you tried to make revenue quickly, or you would essentially go to large strategics who would essentially give you project finance or revenue-based uh, financing or publishing deals, as, as it is called. Now that, that has changed globally. Right. And gaming is a very specialist asset class. You know, there is a reason why there are 30 plus global gaming funds. You know, and some of them have very different takes. Some of them cover, there's, you know, Israel-focused fund, there's a Scandinavian-focused fund, um, you know, Asia-focused fund. Uh, Some have global mandates of all shapes and sizes, all kinds of um, focus areas. But there's a reason why these exist. Simply because from the outside in, gaming looks like a monolith entity, you know, you back one gaming company, you've backed them all, but it's only when you're in the sector and you start to unpack, you know, what what it essentially entails, what are the verticals um, that it has, that's when you realize how massive the, the sector really is. Absolutely. And uh, 
you know, you spoke about the gaming report that you guys did. By the way, that's excellent. Oh, and, thank you. Uh, and it is something that I've referred to multiple times over the last year, right? Well, so, thank you. So I'm glad that the new one's coming out. Hopefully by the time if this podcast out, we'll put out a link for that as well. Thank you. Uh, speaking of even the, the kind of founders that you guys are seeing now, right? Uh, you've, as a, uh, you know, when you worked in London uh, looking at these gaming companies, uh, how long how long back was that? Uh, um, well, t- prior to 2019. So I spent right. 12 years in Europe. Right. So, yeah. so uh, has the entire profile of entrepreneurs also changed here? Because technology has developed, it's gone to a next level. Yes, capital has mm-hmm. become available. Uh, but you've seen gaming like across a decade now, yeah. right? What do you feel? Is it the technology which has changed? Or is it actually, hey, um, I feel the founders are getting smarter. How, what is that? Yeah, I think it's it's both. Right. Uh, also, game development has become largely democratized. Right. There's right. a lot of information that is uh, now very freely available, which is able to tra- you know traverse boundaries. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, you know some global success stories. We've seen local success stories. Um, more importantly, I think the Indian founder has felt has become more emboldened. You know, they have bolder visions. And uh, you know, for us initially, when we came into the market a large part of it was just evangelizing uh, what what could be possible, right. right? What does interactive media essentially mean? And if you look at some of the other markets, in fact, you know, interactive media has often been the engine of innovation, right? The kind of user tracking, the kind of telemetry, the kind of um, expertise that game developers build is actually quite unparalleled, right? As an industry, the amount of effort that goes into trying and understanding their user base is really astounding when it comes to game de- games and game development. Right. And, you know, if we were to, let's say, you know, circle back to a couple of years back, um, what what had happened in India was that from a supply, while there's demand, right, people like to play games in India, um, over the course of the last five, six years, we've seen now large corporates like, you know, or maybe even a decade, right? We've seen large corporates like a Zynga, a GSN, a Ubisoft, an Electronic Arts um, set up shop in India, right? These were companies who were essentially using Indian personnel to run live ops on their games and their products for the global markets. Now, as a result of which, now there is this large uh, base of talent which has essentially been trained on world-class production cycles, has been exposed to what uh, best-in-class looks like. And with now the opening up of the market, with now capital available, with now the Indian audience showcasing monetization, with them being a lot more focused on gaming, the Indian founder from these large companies is saying, hey, um, I want to build something from the right. for, for the global markets. Like if there is a peak games and a grand games and if there is a rollick being you know created out of turkey there's a triple dot which is emerging out of the uk um you know why is that not possible for from india right whether it's building for the global markets or whether that's building from the local markets and that's just only one small piece of the pie right uh, or that's just the content piece you know that's founders were building content but within that when you tack on you know founders who are building platforms founders who are doing tools tech founders who are doing the systems of play or frontier beds once you start to look at that pie and you start seeing the depth of talent and the breadth of talent which is available uh, you know your your search is you know, we, it's you know, it's we, we 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 see so many founders i wish we could do them all we cannot uh, but actually there's there's a lot more depth than was previously thought oh that's that's actually very nice to hear just out of curiosity, what's the average age of, let's say, a gaming entrepreneur? They're older. 
they're older. Yeah. So our, I'd say, average age uh, of the founder would be their mid thirties, actually. Mid thirties, and teams are as old or young. No, teams are younger. The teams are younger. So average age uh, within the teams would be anywhere between twenty-four to you know twenty-four right. to thirty. Uh, the reason why that is is you need to go through a, a development cycle. You need to go through a production cycle. You need to go through that live op cycle uh, to see uh, at least not just a product, but even sometimes you know companies which we have we've just recently today actually we announced a bet called Curious Bit. These were the former co-team members of a company called Play Simple, which um, you know exited to MTG Group for half a billion dollars and. Um, you know, we have Ram and Shubham who've exited now Play Simple, and they've seen, you know, uh, seven plus titles, uh, and seen it from you know seed to exit. Um, they've grown these PNLs for two hundred and fifty million dollar plus, and they've managed seven plus games with positive EBITDAs, right? Right. Um, now that requires a certain amount of experience and a certain amount of expertise. Right. There are examples of, you know, teams straight out of college who will hit it out of the park with a hit game. But those are a rarity. Yeah. The average age of a gaming founder is tends to be, I'd say, skews a little bit older because you do require that level of experience to have gone through those many iterations uh, because game development in itself is a very brutal yeah. process. I'm going right? to go into game development in a bit, but it just uh, remind me of something, right? That teams are younger, founders are slightly older, right? Um, I was actually reading something uh, a while back, which was talking about um, average IQs over different generations, right? And there was a study that if you were a World War One veteran uh, and you uh, you were basically 50th percentile, right? So mm. in the middle of your peers, mm. um, and if you look at that person, right, uh, World War One, right, that person would actually rank in the 22nd percentile of a World War Two mm. veterans uh, peer group. Mm. Right, they did some experiments. I think it's called the Flynn effect or something, mm. and they found that you know IQ points move something like three points every ten years, mm. which is phenomenal, right? Mm. But that means that basically somebody who is give or take average today was probably in the ninetieth percentile hundred years back, mm. Mm. right? So often when I find very young founders mm. and who are doing a lot, mm. uh, and you're like, no, maybe will he be able to do this? Yeah. I have to, and you're always trying to balance between hey experience versus you know knowledge about the space. So we try to kind of balance that, right? But I think for gaming companies that uh, that must be even more valid because uh, you need the younger guys to tell you, hey, this is working, this is not working, yeah. because they experience it differently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And look, there's. There's also something to be said that eventually gaming is as much art as it is yeah, science, absolutely. right? There is always a current zeitgeist which impacts what's in trend. And every two years, there's a new genre, a new demographic, a new platform, um, new interests that, that come and go. And you have to stay very close to the pulse of what is what is developing and what is evolving. Now, there are founders who apply a very formulaic approach to it, right? But rarely that is, you know, I'd say it's becoming harder and harder to win just because you have formulaic process. Right. You know, it is equally, in equal measures, head as well as heart, which goes into building very successful game, games companies. I would say that, you know, it, there is a myth, this young uh, college-going dropout being this successful founder is, is quite a myth. In fact, there's been, you know, enough and more research which has been done that the average age of most successful entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley is actually tends to be much older, yeah. right? Because company building is hard. 
right? You have to think about managing culture. You have to think about, you know, building a company. You have to manage your board, especially if you're venture-backed, right? Managing your board, managing investor relationships. So, you know, it does so appear that perhaps as you have are older, have more experience, you tend to be better equipped. Yeah, I think I actually uh-huh. that number is close to 40 in the Silicon Valley, right? Exactly, that's yeah. right. Uh, would love to, at this point, just understand the economics of a game development company, right? Uh, how does that actually, let's say for a common person looking at a game right now, right? We look at, hey, this is, you know, Jet Synthesis or this is EA Sports. Uh, could you just break that down for us? How that works from a publisher standpoint versus everybody else who's involved uh, below that? Sure. You know, I think depending on which vertical you are in and what you're building, the economics and the business model changes, right? If you're a content studio or a publisher of games, let's say, you have probably three avenues. The first is advertising-based revenue. The second is in-app purchases, which is essentially, you know, users paying you for things within the game. Uh, that's cra- that's called crafting a game economy. And uh, the third element of it, you could have some elements of subscription. In some cases, it could be battle passes like in, like in mid-core games. But that's broadly what a publisher... Sorry, would... what is mid-core games? Can you explain? Uh, mid-core games are games which are um, like like a Battlegrounds Mobile India. You're, you know, slightly uh, harder games, slightly longer session lengths, which require a level of higher level of mastery than, let's say, playing like casual games like Candy Crush or a Bubble Shooter or a Subway Surfer. So that's another way lens with which you slice this, Absolutely. right? So like, uh, Absolutely. What's it called? Uh, casual, casual, hyper casual. Yeah, there's hyper casual, there's casual, there's mid-core and there's core games. Yeah. So even within content, there's a further slice. Right. As I said, the landscape is incredibly complex. Is there different kind of profit pools across all of these? Yeah, some some companies, exactly, that's very right. Some businesses monetize much more via ads versus IEPs. Some will monetize much more via some other kind of medium. But largely, the kind of genre that you are will often determine the business model that you have. Great. And so broadly, if you're a publisher or a content business, you have three avenues of monetizing. Larger publishers also then have a separate kind of, yeah, I guess revenue stream could be from esports. Yeah. Where, but those tend to be more about building brand equity and promoting the game as opposed to very meaningful revenue pools. But that is also another aspect of of building revenue that these large publishers right. uh, build, uh, la- large leverage. Whereas if you're a platform business, you know you could have a little bit of all the same, but you could also see virtual gifting and tipping. Right. Right. Which is very interesting behaviors that we see now emerging. We've seen this in Western markets. We've seen this in the Asian markets. But that's another form of revenue generation that is very possible for, let's say, platform plays. Right. If you're a tools tech company, that's very similar to what you would see from B2B SaaS companies, right? It could be a recurrent fees. It could be a recurrent uh, license. It could be some form of a revenue share, right. right? And then you have frontier bets, which fall a little bit for a different bet. Uh, for example, how do Web3 companies monetize, for example? That's a little bit of a difference. So depending on which vertical you are, you evaluate companies differently and the business models which they leverage are also very different. Right. I think uh, this is a good segue into actually coming to another category, right? Which has been hugely impacted by regulation at this point. Real money gaming, as we all know, is kind of under the anvil, right? First off, right, your thoughts on the 28% GST which is being levied on these companies. So look, I mean, you know, I think we've, we've put out a, a public statement around uh, around that, uh, you know, it it is this 20, the 28% is 
of course, impacting several of these companies uh, quite adversely. I think uh, what is currently underway and under abeyance is the retrospective taxation, right? Um, but look, ultimately for us, the way we have looked at the sector has always been that, you know, real money gaming is a smaller slice of the larger market, right? If we were to look at the way the market is sliced currently, you know, uh, there is a lot of misconception that RMG is 100% of the market, uh, of the India market. Right. But it right? is more than 50%, right? It's around 50%. Right. But it's not 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And that 50%, if you're a challenger startup, what are the odds of you achieving uh, any kind of disruption within that space when there were already very large incumbents in place, which was already heavily venture capitalized? So to some extent, it was a red ocean in any case. Right. Right. So for us, either way, we've always said that the pie of what India gaming is going to look like 10 years from now, very different from what the India gaming scene looks like today. India gaming already in 2023 is already very different from the India gaming of 2013. Correct. Right? So every decade, we're changing the way in which people are interfacing, right? So for us, our cues are seeing what are what is the Indian gamer going to be doing three years from now? Or what is the Indian gamer going to be expecting from their experiences seven years from now or 10 years from now? Are they going to be playing Ludo in 10 years? I mean, the answer is probably not, no, right? Yeah. You know, and even this taxation, it just felt kind of punitive, right? My first reaction to this was that, look, of course, there'll be direct consequences to companies. And of course, now there's retrospective tax, which has been put on Dream11 and uh, Delta Corp, which is more than their market cap, right? Uh, in some cases. But the other, you know, second order consequences that I thought where this will impact innovation is that, look, the moment you kind of put that kind of a dark cloud, right? All the kind of innovation which is going to happen and gamification and embedded gamification should go into other industries. That might take a hit because companies might be like, hey, should I innovate here? There's a regulatory cloud if they've not done their homework, right? Because not everything is... Uh, so I think, is it any... You know, I look at it a little bit differently. You know, there was... And we've seen retrospective taxation happen in telecom yeah. before, right? It was about a decade. We we know what happened then, right? Uh, is it just a gaming issue? Is this a broader industry-wide tech issue? I'd say it's probably a much, much broader issue than that, right? right? Is it only isolated to just what happens in the gaming sector? I don't think so, right? I think when you have innovation, which is essentially being... And look, I, I think one has to recognize that anything large that has to be built has to be built under the ambit of regulation if you have to scale, right? Right. Um, and anything large, which is, has to also be built, has to, to some extent, offset externalities of that business that you have. Right? Gaming companies, um, especially globally, have learned to navigate that. Right? When you have large gaming companies, which are, you know, have very large profit pools, uh, they find ways to become net positive for the for the ecosystem at large. For example, Supercell is a great example. Right? It's a company which makes $3 billion in revenue and a billion dollars in free cash flow. They run carbon neutral offices. They have set up coding schools. They're the country's highest taxpayer. And those are businesses which have learned over time to be able to start saying, how do we give back to society, right? Similarly, if we look back in the last two decades of businesses, large businesses which have set up, they have realized that they need to work in tow with the regulation and work in tow with society in order to be able to grow those. You know, the erstwhile, not the erstwhile, but 
the industrialists of the last, you know, the Tatas, the Birlas, the Ambani's when they were building their businesses, learned that, you know, the way to build the businesses was to also some extent be when you're pioneering new industry, there is always a lot of education. There is always a lot of evangelization. And at the same time, there is always a lot of, you know, giving back to to the social ecosystem that, that needs to be partaken. I believe India tech has still not started to do that. Right. Not just gaming, I'd say broader India tech has still not started to do that, right, at the moment. And within broader India tech, who have been the most profitable companies have largely been the gaming companies, Correct. right? Because, and, and that's where the hammer has, has now come down, right? right? So eventually anything large that has to be built has to be built under the ambit of law. And eventually, what does innovation, what do consumer interests want? How does the consumer evolve in terms of its preferences over the next three, five, seven, ten years? Um, you know, that's the, that that user is, is becoming different, right? You know, the interesting thing is that we're talking about growing on, you know, under the prevalent law, but somebody like uh, Dream 11 actually fought the law, right? In terms of, hey, trying to establish that we are a game of skill, not a game of chance, right? And we should be, and they went to the Supreme Court and all of that had happened. But now it is just under a single umbrella, right? It doesn't matter whether you're a game of chance or a game of skill, you get taxed the same way. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's fair or... Uh... Look, I, I'm not a lawyer, so it's it's going to be very hard for me to debate uh, that. I think this is best left to, you know, uh, and left to unpack from from lawyers and the legalese of what that means and what, you know, I think there are certain norms under which various things fall under. But, you know, I'd say again, broadly, you, you know, we spend a lot of our time and and especially, I think currently, there's a lot of time and narrative which is spent on things like games with cash-based outcomes. I think what right. is the good thing that has been done is that the government has made a distinction of games with cash-based outcomes versus games with non-cash-based outcomes. And if you look at the draft animation video games policy, which is essentially looking at games with non-cash-based outcomes, there is genuine recognition that, you know, that's the engine of growth. And there is genuine, if you even hear Rajiv Chandrasekhar speak, right? There is genuine recognition of the of the fact that there are there are centers of excellence being set up to talk about just for game design, right? Telangana has a center of excellence to promote game development. The animation video game ecosystem in the country is being also there are talks about giving financial SOP, SOPs and and incentives. So I think you know when you zoom out of all the media noise. And when you start looking at the numbers and when you start looking at like, let's say, recent surveys, right? Um, we do primary and, and secondary surveys of gamers, right? And when you start seeing, asking people, hey, you're engaging with games. Why are you playing games? One would think, according to most people as per the media, would say, we're only playing games to pay money. That's not the case, right? right? People are coming and saying, hey, I'm playing games to relax. Hey, I'm playing games to socialize with my friends. Hey, I'm playing games because I'm bored. Or, hey, I'm playing games while I'm commuting. Hey, I'm playing games because I want, you know, different kind of experiences. So if the consumer is changing, I'm wondering why is the media and the narrative not changing? Right. Right? And until that changes, how will, how else will you have builders who build, who are close to the user and saying, hey, I now I know what my user wants. Now I know what that psychology looks like. Right. Right. I think even when we think about this, and I try to think about this, that, hey, why would the government want to do something like this? And like you said, right, if you zoom out a little bit, you realize it's not really about gaming. But if you look at the government's policies towards anything which is speculative in nature, right, they've tried to do away with it, right? So whether that's speculation around um, around crypto, 
um, or it is now in uh, in things like this. Uh, but I'm still trying to grapple with what is the real reason why you know uh, they're doing this. Any insight as to that? I think you'll have to put somebody from the government to this chair <laughs> the next time. Yeah, yeah, maybe the next time. <laughs> I'm going to move to the last part of sure. uh, of this conversation, right? Which is that this is a very bold bet, even though I'm. It comes out of a lot of conviction for you guys to go into the gaming sector, right? But something which has got to give you a lot of encouragement is that the gaming exits that are happening, most of them through MNAs, but they've, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they seem to be increasing in their exit sizes over time. Do you believe that trend's going to continue and especially uh, that's going to happen in India as well over the next half a decade or so? It already happens in India, right? And, you know, again, as an asset class, you can stretch data back five years, six years, seven years, a decade, even more than two decades. Uh, exits in gaming happen via M&A. Yeah. It's just as simple as that. 93% of exits happen via M&A. And there's a, large, there's a reason for that is because the public market representation for this asset class is very shallow. There are about, you know, maybe 60, 70, maybe 100 odd companies across the world, which is catering to a, a population of nearly six, seven billion people and their preferences. And the representation of that, this kind of technology platform, immersive nature of media is very, very shallowly, shallowly represented. And what has happened is that all these large companies have realized that it is much easier to buy rather than to build. So every couple of years, every, I'd say, you know, three, four years, there is always a wave of m and that happens. You know, it happened in 2010, 2012. It happened in 2016, 2018. Then it happened again in 2019 to 2021. Uh, and it'll happen again in another couple of years, right? Uh, India alone has seen, you know, six plus strategic exits north of $700 million in just game development content alone, right? right? Um, as we start to see gaming companies become global from India, right? The top five Indian developers building for the global markets have grossed over $900 million in the last four, three, four years. How many companies can boast of top lines like that, right? right? So when you start looking at, let's say, just, you know, data, when you start looking at just the economics of the business, right, you start to realize that the levers of this industry work very differently from that to, let's say, other industries, right? right. It is important to invest in games companies early. It is important to understand the pulse of where the games industry is globally in order to be able to find the right bets. It is important to have the right strategic networks and connections in order to be able to catalyze these companies and take them to the next step or whether it is, you know, whether it's raising the next round of capital or whether it's, you know, the next round of, or, or to an exit. It is important to recognize that uh, this industry moves very fast. Every two years, trends change. So, you know, and it is important to understand that there is breadth and depth to this sector, which is far beyond you know, certain sectors which which get a lot more coverage rather than the others. Right. So when you start to break that industry down, it doesn't feel niche, it doesn't feel small. What it does is essentially it tells you that it's incredibly complex. And in order to be able to kind of receive any kind of outlier success, it requires specialists. And, you know, there's this now very recent research report, which has actually now been come, come out, that specialist funds tend to outperform yes. generalist funds, both in terms of TVPI and IRR. And this is data stretched back over the last like six years. I believe, you know, Sapphire Partners, which is a very large LP, has published this research report. And actually the sweet spot is sector-focused funds 
sub $250 million, which tend to outperform uh, generalist or sector agnostic right. funds. And, uh, you know, the, the reason for that is probably, you know, some of the reasons that I've highlighted. Um, and, and for us, you know, the strategy um, within, for, for Lomikai has been, uh, we've been fortunate that we've been supported by some of the world's largest uh, game strategics. Several of them since the time we've incepted the fund have come in and said, hey, we, we want to support growth strategies in the India market. Um, and they have back companies with us as well. Um, so, you know, the next next decade or so is, is going to be very, very interesting for this this asset class. Wonderful. Uh, my final question is, uh, um, you know, you have you guys have some really good strategics who really un deeply understand this market, right? And one of them is uh, is pretty much a market leader at this point. How do we build more Nazara techs out of India? Look, if you're a great founder, capital is not a problem, right? Um, if you're a strong founder, venture capital for you is commoditized largely, right? You right. can go to any fund and you're likely going to be able to raise capital. But I think who you partner with is often as important as what you build. Because a gaming founder needs assistance far more than capital. You need to know who to hire. You need to know when to hire. You need to know how to hire. Then once you have that, you know, uh, how do you keep in touch with global best practices? What is know-how? How do you get, how do you meet best-in-class games founders from across the world who probably have maybe traversed the identical journey that you have in a, there's knowledge sharing. Uh, who do you raise money from in the future rounds, right? right. One of our companies, Elo Elo, raised money from Courtside and Griffin, which are two yeah. of the largest gaming funds globally, right? So who you raise money from also becomes important. So how do those doors get opened for you? What about strategic partnerships? What about thinking about distribution? The way you build a platform business in games versus the way you build a content business can be different. So how do you think about distribution uh, globally, locally, right? Are there some of these strategics who could essentially plug into you and become value-add partners from you very, very early on? So those are the things I think that become very important to unpack. Um, you know, Nazara is, is a great example of a company from India, which has, you know, been a success story, but it took 20 years to be able to build that success story and it was a very lonely journey, um, right? And, uh, you know, Nitish uh, the, was a flag bearer of the games industry for a very long time. Um, but that many builders or that many believers in that story for a very long time, uh, that all of that has now changed. So, you know, our hope is that we will see a lot more and bigger outcomes um, than, than what we have in the past. Absolutely. That's my hope for you guys as well. Okay. Uh, Saloni, thank you so much for spending time with us. And hopefully we hope to have you here again sometime. Well, thank you so much for having me.